Welcome back to Mindful Tanya Teachings. This is our mini-series about the notion of intention, feeling, fervor, and mindfulness in mitzvot and Yiddishkeit observances. Now today we're going to focus specifically on the concept of intentions, or what's found just in intentions. And why intentions play so important a role. Before we begin to study, I would like to take this opportunity to thank our class sponsor, Sherwin Weber, for underwriting today's class. And she does so to commemorate the yardset of her mother, Fega Nacha Bas Bedish. Hashem should help that the Torah study that we're engaged in together with today will serve as an aliyah, as an elevation for her neshama, and that Bezrat Hashem Sharon should only have surotovat, good news, and good health, and happy times to share with us all. Moving right along, we are in the fourth part of the 38th chapter of Tanya. And we have dealt with a very strange statement that was made by the great medieval rabbis, what we call the Rishonim. The statement, the statement was about mitzvahs that are performed mindlessly. As per our previous class, they taught mitzvah belekavona, a Torah observance, an act of love and loyalty of dedication and devotion that's not performed with any sense of love or loyalty, that's not a representation or expression of any kind of dedication or devotion, but rather it's a, an act that is perhaps habitual. Or maybe it's an act in which somebody feels compelled due to external coercion, peer pressure, pleasing your bubby. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter why. The point is somebody goes through the mechanics of a mitzvah and has no special intention to do this as an act of commitment to God. So the Rishonim said, the great medieval sages of the Jewish people, and we see their perspective as almost angelic. They said that a mitzvah like that is kaguf belay neshama. It's like a body sans the soul. Now on a literal level, it seems to indicate that this is a, an apt metaphor. A mitzvah without intention, a mitzvah that's mindless, is meaningless. That sounds really good, except it's just not true. It's just not true because although intentions seem to figure or have some position of importance within the framework of our Torah literature, we have been taught that hamaisa hu ha'ikr, that the deed is indeed our Jewish creed. And halachically, the system of Jewish ritual law by which we govern ourselves, halacha dictates that an action of a mitzvah 
performed precisely as prescription is meaningful. In fact, it's the most meaningful. Extraordinary mindfulness with shoddy activity amounts to nothing. That's right. It doesn't matter how much fervor, how much passion, how, how much mindfulness or meditation you invest in this particular act of Yiddishkeit. If you didn't do the mitzvah per its sacred prescription, you didn't accomplish anything. Simply stated. If a person meditates on the eve of Pesach about the value and virtue of matzah, about it representing the notion of self-abnegation, absolute obedience, that chametz, which is a descriptive term on a literal level of a chemical process of what we call fermentation or rising of, of when, when alkaline comes in contact with flour that contains a chemical called Amy B or Amy C, there's a chemical reaction and then there's a fermentation process, a chimutz process, which is called rising. And that rising means little air pockets begin to develop. That is a metaphor for the notion of arrogance. And that chametz is arrogance and it has to be ruled out. And matzah is humility and that's got to be brought in. And if somebody meditates all night and thinks deeply about these ideas and ideals, even committing to live a life which is exalted, a life which is inspired, a life which is elevated, a life which is punctuated by profound humility. My dear friend, you have accomplished absolutely nothing if you didn't eat the matzah. And if you ate matzah, but it was not kosher for Passover, meaning it was matzah that looks like matzah, smells like matzah, and perhaps tastes like matzah. It's still, despite its quacking, is not a duck. And if halacha says it's chametz, it's chametz. Not only did you not draw closer to Hashem on that Pesach night, but in fact, you created an enormous division. You erected an invisible barrier between yourself and between the Creator. A tragic loss of opportunity. So, what about the person who ate matzah? They ate matzah because, well, because they were told to eat matzah. They showed up at this uh, public seder and the rabbi got up and he said, listen, my friends, you got to eat matzah tonight. I don't care what else you do. Macaroons, manashevitz, it's not what Pesach's about. Matzah. I'm going to give you a little bag of matzah. That's what I do at my public seder. A little bag of matzah. And we, we, we weighed and measured. This is a kezayat. It's the precise amount that's a serving. Eat every last crumb and don't say a word till you're done. And the person's like, what is this? I want a Seder, I want inspiration, I want, I want singing, I want dancing, I want ideas, I want meditation, I don't want, I don't want crackers. Okay, Rabbi, if that's what you say, I'll do it. I'm not really into this. I don't even know if I believe it. That's fine. Harold, just eat the matzah. And Harold eats the matzah, or Sally eats the matzah. Guess what? It's a mindless, 
mitzvah of matzah that has extraordinarily, in, 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 in very, very instantaneously enriched their soul. You may not feel it. They may not know it. But that's what Torah emet. That's what the Torah, our Torah, that deals and traffics in objective truths teaches us. How we feel about it, it's not relevant. If you eat chametz matzah, that looks like matzah, and you feel really spiritual, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. And if you eat real shmura matzah, and don't feel anything, you necessarily have received a spiritual upgrade. You're closer to Hashem by virtue of it. So what in heaven does it mean when we say that a mitzvah that's performed mindlessly, mitzvah, belay kavana, is kaguf belay neshama. I'd like to say something radical. Don't shoot me. I, I, it seems to me, I'm just a little guy, it seems to me that this statement which was made by some of the greatest Rishonim, and I, I enumerated that either in my previous class or the class before that, but I, I, w- I went through the details. I, I, pre- I presented the teachings of the Rishonim to you. It seems to me that other than the Rishonim themselves, or maybe their very, very small inner coterie of disciples, that this was for centuries simply not understood. I can't tell you nobody ever asked the question or seeming contradiction between that statement and the facts of the matter, but there is no explanation. There is no elucidation of this prophet until the Alter Rebbe comes along in Sefer Tanya Kadisha. Until we get to learn Tanya, nobody ever explained this. Which is an incidental. That's, the Alter Rebbe didn't write the Tanya to explain the statement. But when you learn Hasidus, and when you have this extraordinary and amazing illumination, all areas of Torah shine more brightly. And all things are seen in higher definition. Why is the Alter Rebbe talking about this? Let me digress, if I may, for just one more moment, and offer a personal observation. You'll forgive me. Personal observation, it helped me, maybe it'll help you too. It seems to me that the Alter Rebbe, over the last series of chapters, in which he talked about the remarkable nature of the physical, the material, in which he described our Torah eschatology as not getting through the obstacle course so that you can go to heaven, but rather navigating the challenges of our earthly existence so we can bring heaven here. It's not about you or me. It's not about our personal journey and us reaching our own personal satisfaction or self-achievement. It's about the world reaching its destined purpose. And we, we have the privilege the remarkable gift of serving as Hashem's partners in perfecting the world that He created. The first mitzvah that anybody ever fulfilled after receiving a direct commandment, a mitzvah that is binding for posterity, 
is the mitzvah of Brit Milah. Fulfilled by Avram Avinu. I've heard the question. I've received the question multiple times from those who scoff, mock, deride, belittle, disparage, and a host of other things. Our Torah belief, our faith in Hashem, our Yiddishkeit. Misguided individuals, fine people, misguided, sadly. I'm like, if God wanted a man to be circumcised, you're listening to the logic? So why didn't he create him that way? I mean, if, if you claim that God wants a man's body to be missing that piece of skin, so why wouldn't he make him born without the piece of skin? And lucky for me, there's already the documentation of this question being asked millennia ago. It's documented in the Gemara. One of the greatest sages, if not the greatest sage of all time is Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is accosted by a heretic, an Apicorus, likely a follower of the philosophy of Epicurus, who believes in nothing other than the here and now. And he said to him, Rabbi Akiva, if God wanted a human being to be missing the piece of skin, he could have created it that way. To which Rabbi Akiva replied, tell me something, if God wanted you to have bread, why wouldn't he make bread grow in the field? Why did he make wheat or oats or barley or spelt grow in the field? So that you should starve? We see the creator as the sustainer of life and sustenance for human beings necessarily comes in the form of food. And carbohydrates, basic carbohydrates form the bottom of our food pyramid. So if God wanted us to eat basic carbohydrates, and with Torah itself says, It's not only bread. You got to have cream cheese too. Or lox. It's not only protein, not only carbohydrates, but some proteins too. But but that is the basic staple. That is the foundational staple. Why didn't God make carbohydrates that are more edible? Okay, you get some parrots and uh, uh, carrots and, 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 uh, that, that you can eat basically straight out of the ground. But how many things can you just eat straight like that? Or that people don't in some way perfect or cook? And certainly bread, which is the basic staple, requires a tremendous amount of effort until you have that delicious slice of warm bread in front of you. And the answer is because Hashem wants us to perfect what He created. He created wheat so that we will manufacture or process the wheat. And we process the wheat by removing the chaff and getting rid of the, sta the stalk and then grinding and then sifting where it goes from basic vegetation, turns into flour, and then comes the kneading, and then comes the ingredients, the shaping, the forming, and the baking, until you can actually eat it. What the Gemara calls Sidura de Pas, the order of what it takes to make a loaf of bread. And the point, of course, is this. Hashem wants us to work with the physical material world so as to reveal its endless potential.
And this is true in a material sense. And that's the beauty of technology, which is the sum total of human achievement and endeavor over the last few thousand years, although it's accelerated greatly over the last two centuries. Each generation has built on the successes and perhaps even more so on the failures of the previous generation. And we are unleashing the powers of our material world as never before, especially in view of what we call quantum physics. So this is all a mirror for the spiritual reality. And incidentally, the acceleration that we have seen since the Industrial Revolution, which continues to pick up speed in really astounding ways, especially over the last 30 years, which is also a marker in Jewish history as we move more closely, more quickly moving towards the era of Mashiach, which is very, very imminent. We also see a development of the world's holiness being revealed. And if we don't see it, we're told that it is so by people like the Rebbe who could see it. And every time we do a mitzvah, we're perfecting another iota of material existence. We're revealing another tiny part of the spiritual potential that this world has. And Alta Rebbe goes on about this and talks about how precious the world is and how wonderful the world is and how the world is filled with opportunity. And it's precisely because God conceals himself that we have this remarkable ability and that's what Hashem wanted and we emphasize again and again the nature of action. And then we talked about the, the nature of harnessing the inner powers of a human being and, and in, investing ourselves with a fervor and a passion. And we said, oh, that's also part of the physical reality because the soul as it's invested in the body is part of the material world. It's all part of the material world. And that brings us like almost to the brink. This is my own observation brings us to the brink of like, we're almost over the cliff now. We're getting so obsessed with action that at this point, we have almost let go of the virtue called mindfulness. Who cares about mindfulness? The deed is decreed. In fact, that's why the deed is decreed. That's why Hamai Sehua Iker. So if that's why Hamai Sehua Iker, maybe we should forget about mindfulness. Maybe mindfulness is false. Maybe that's not what Judaism is about. Forget about meditation. Forget about contemplation. Forget about intention. Intentions are meaningless. You know, the road to hell is paved with uh, good intentions. And with the worst of intentions, a mitzvah still gets done. They tell a story about a young man who married well. What does married well mean? Whatever. He had in-laws who were somewhat wealthy. And with their independent wealth, they were able to enable him to continue to study. This was the, the way things were in the civilization, the, the shtetl civilization, the shtetl culture. There was so much poverty and so much, so much need. And really, it was so difficult to keep body and soul together that many people, by the time they were in their teenage years, there was no time to study. They were compelled to do everything possible just to keep body and soul together. And they married very early, and they died very early. Life expectancy was something like 47. And you married early, and you had to have a roof over your head. So who got to study? For the most part, people who had some kind of wealth or affluence managed to be able to, to study. So to marry well was 
to be in a situation where you could continue your studies. So the story is told about uh, this young scholar who married well, and his in-laws are supporting them, and they're living as it used to be in the shtetl days. They built on a little addition to the house, and he has his you know, little bedroom. He and his bride live. And it's a shtetl. Sounds like there wasn't even a shul, a little hamlet. So he's studying in the, I guess, what you would call today the, the sitting room or the dining room. And sometimes he would daydream. Yeah, he was lonely all by himself, without a study partner, with no Rosh Hashiva to motivate him. He would study, but then he would hear somebody at the door. He figured it was his father-in-law, his mother-in-law coming to check up to see if their investment was paying off. So he would begin to study with great fervor. They should feel good about, you know, that they're, they're spending money and they're providing for their children. They should know that they're getting a return for the money. And this goes on for a year. And then eventually, the young man somehow found out that the rustling or creaking of the door was not his mother-in-law, not his father-in-law, not even his wife. It was the family cat. The cat used to come often. And he studied a whole year to please the cat. No, it's uh, pathetic. But then again, the Torah was studied. Whatever area of Torah was learned, there was mastery attained. The person was in the know. And after all, the mitzvah got done. So forget mindfulness. Forget super consciousness. Forget being able to feel. Who cares about any of that? That's not so simple. Because Judaism makes a big deal out of intentions. As per the statement that the him said, mitzvah, balei kavana, a mitzvah without in mindfulness or intention, is keguf balei neshama. So we, we have a problem here now. And so the Alter Rebbe is under pressure. He has to explain if actions are actually so important, on that case, then why is intention of any value? And he says, that is encapsulated in that statement precisely. And as we discussed, it doesn't really seem to make sense. And the Alta Rebbe said, let me preface and explain. And now he's going to finally bring, he's going to bring it home. What did we talk about in our previous class? The Alta Rebbe took us on a little journey through the various forms of life. Inanimate life, mineral life, stone, soil, water, gas. They are part of the physical world, but there's no life in them. And then there's the vegetative world, some life, but very little life, not really what you would call independent life. There's no evidence, no hard evidence really of emotion, of feeling, anxiety, intelligence. Just like a clump of biology that reacts mindlessly, knowinglessly. Doesn't barely seems alive. And then there's animal life. And animals have intelligence, although they cannot communicate intelligently. And the animal world has not progressed in the last 5,781 years. Cows are still doing the exact same thing that cows did then, we think. There's no technology amongst the raccoons. The beavers are still building dams the same way. 
One generation does not get wiser than the other. Papa Beaver does not have anything to tell his offspring. He says, Kindalach, listen, I've been building dams for many years, and over the years I figured out you can build a better dam if you do it this way or that way. It's all instinctual. The animal does what it does, and generation after generation, beaver after beaver, dams are built exactly the same way. Humanity, always changing. Sometimes the changes are, are lateral. We don't really see any progression. We don't see any development. And sometimes, oftentimes, I'm not talking about decency. I'm not talking about sensitivity. I'm not talking about spirituality because those things are not scientific. That's based on revelation. But things that are based on science, strictly speaking knowledge, or that which we gain from observing phenomenon and then maybe experimenting to see how other phenomenon would yield us different results, we've built on this and humanity continues to build and to develop. And so we're very advanced in that sense. So there's animal life, which doesn't evolve, at least not in a mindful way, doesn't learn from previous generations. And then there's humanity. And humanity is markedly different. The porpoises may be very smart, and the fox is considered to be the cleverest, slyest or cleverest of the wild animals in the forest, as it says, shu'al pikach shebechayis. Yet, to the best of our knowledge, the foxes have not changed their lifestyle. Fox anthropology hasn't changed over the last few thousand years. Foxes continue to do what foxes do. They outfox their enemies in exactly the same fashion. And neither they nor those who pursue them have become any wiser. So we have life, and then we have human life, the crown of creation. All of this, all of this we learned in our previous class are under the same concealment as in Hester. They're all, for all of this to exist, we need what's considered to be an emptiness. We need to empty the presence of the Creator. If we would feel the presence of the Creator, we couldn't exist. In the brilliance of light, the candlelight, the rays of the candle simply do not exist. It is only when night falls that suddenly the rays of the candle or its radiance are brought into existence. It's only when it's dark at night that those outside giant theater screens can suddenly become useful, the drive-ins. Because you need an absence of light in order to be able to see what was there all along. So the Gemara will put it as Shraga Batira Mayahani. The moonlight during the day is like candlelight during the day, meaningless, serving no purpose. Too much light disables the ability for us to see that which is created by variations of light. So Hashem has to, if you will, be master. He has to conceal entirely His presence. Hester upon Him. God's presence isn't seen at all. God's concealed. Now, although God is concealed, there's a whole world. Where did the world come from? The answer is God brought it into existence. So in the emptiness, there has now become a replacement. Instead of godliness, there is worldliness. There is existence. But this independent existence can only exist if the source of all existence 
does not eclipse it. Otherwise, it's overwhelmed by its source. So all of existence includes mineral to vegetative, includes animal to human. None of us feel or see or know the presence of God acutely, per se. You cannot see the presence of God by looking at a mountain or a volcano. You cannot see or feel or know the presence of God by looking at a redwood tree or a shrubbery or analyzing or or looking at animal life in its curios or, or trying to make sense out of human civilization, which may be most difficult at all. You, that's not, you don't see God there. There's an equal blackout, Hester Punim. If you're looking for God by virtue of scientific analyses, if you're gonna find, think you're gonna find God under a microscope, think again, it's not happening. You won't find him in people, you won't find him in animals or in plants or in rocks, minerals. You will not find God. That's the nature of Elam Hazagashmi. At the same time, though, we believe that life is godly. And so, where is the greatest investment or expression of divinity in our world? The answer is within human life. Torah teaches us that human life uniquely is sacred. It is in the divine image. To take an innocent human life is the gravest rebellion against the Creator. You are, by definition, removing a part of the Creator from this world. Chopping down an endangered tree may be a crime against a particular civilization, but it is not, from a Torah perspective, an act of removal of God's presence. Destroying the typography of nature, fracking, if you will, is not a rebellion against God per se. It may be appropriate for us to take care of the planet that God has given us that may well be what Torah asks and expects of us. And there's a very nuanced issue here and it's how do we enable the promulgation and successful development of humanity and at the same time protect and preserve nature. And I do not wish to make any political statements. There's truth to be found in all arenas in extreme idiocy as well. So let's not get into the details of how that filters through to politics because politics is all false. Objectively speaking, these are all, they're all truisms and they, they require tremendous nuance. And difficult decisions sometimes have to be made. You amputate a leg to save a life. It's not a good thing. It's a horrible thing. It's a disaster. It's terrible. Necessary sometimes. Choice of evils, they call it. You kill an animal, even if it's somebody's favorite dog. You're a mean person. It's inappropriate. You may even end up in jail in this country. But you're not a murderer. You kill a baby or a person who's 101 years old. You're a murderer. Maybe it's not called that in this country anymore. But Torah calls it as such. And shvichas domim, the spillage of innocent blood, is one of the greatest sins a human being can commit. Why? Because we see life as an expression of divinity. And in the highest form of life, namely humanity, where the uniqueness of communication is endowed, medaber we're called, the communicator. 
where we have the ability to choose. We have self-consciousness, awareness of ourselves vis-a-vis our surroundings, and don't only see things through our own selfish lenses. We have the ability to necessarily, to necessarily choose between good and evil. And that's what life's about. You can call it the game of life, if that makes you feel good. In this game, to score points means to make the world a godlier place, to prepare the world for its redeemed state. And every time you do a mitzvah and you modify and utilize the physical world for a holy, a sacred purpose, you have essentially advanced that cause and moved it forward. So on one hand, the Hester Punim, the blackout is equal. On the other hand, the divine light, if you will, a metaphor, the energy which God uses to create is found in a more profound way within a human being. And that's why when we lose a loved one, we say a prayer called Kaddish. Kaddish does not memorialize the dead per se. It speaks of the greatness of God because the loss of a human being means that there's less godliness in the world. And that is the greatest memorialization for a lost soul. And that's why we dedicate Torah classes and mitzvahs in the memory of a soul that once lived here to give the soul solace that the soul should know that it still matters and that it is still able to affect matter because creatures of matter like you and I, using matter like plastic, glass, and metal, are now studying Torah, albeit not face-to-face. And in doing so, we are able to make our world a better place. And dedicating that to the neshama of one who has passed on gives the neshama nachas, as it has become a catalyst and a cause for the continued advancement of this process. And this is called tzimtzum. This is called the diminishing light of God. God diminishes His light. He doesn't remove His light. doesn't hide His presence. But He camouflages His presence. So the metaphor we used in the previous class was having a great big wall that's put up and no, no longer does the sunlight spill into the room. But then we made a window. Ah. So a small amount of light was coming through, but then we didn't just leave the window. We put curtains over the window. And the window with allowed sunlight in, but the sunlight was filtered. And the more curtains we placed, the dimmer the light got. That is tzimtzum. The metaphor that I, I used is this notion of tuning in. And you're tuned into the dials, but you're getting a very, very unclear sound. You can barely make out that there's even something being spoken. Forget that you can't even understand what's being said. You can turn the volume higher or lower, but that's all you get. That's all you get. You can make the picture sharper, but all you're going to get is the same blurry picture sharper. You're not getting a clear picture. So that tzimtzum is where we see a difference. And that's why there is a difference between humanity and animals and vegetation and the mineral reality. The Alter Rebbe now uses this metaphor in a backwards fashion. This is what you call looking at the iceberg, so to speak, from the other side. Now, as we move forward in Pede Klamet Ches, in the fourth section of Pede Klamet Ches, 
Just for station identification, I'm sorry for the long preface, but I think this will help you all understand and appreciate the profundity of what we're going to learn today. We're in the original text of Tanya on page 100, and we are in the top third of the page. Ukamoi. I think it's eight or nine lines down from the top, and it starts with Urukumoi. Says the Alter Rebbe, Ukumoi she'ein erech v'dimoyen. Just as there is absolutely no comparison. There is, it's not even on the same scale. It's not on the same realm, the same, on the same, so to speak, on the same range. When we speak about the concept of when we talk about the godliness, never mind that we don't recognize that it's godliness. Never mind that to us it seems like some kind of animating force that which we will say is unnamed. File X, we don't know what it is. Because we don't know that it's godliness because there's something called Hester, but something called the concealment. In this world, you're not going to see God. Nobody sees God in this world. The last time we saw God in this world was 3,331 years ago at Matan Torah. When God gave us the Torah, we saw the presence of God in every iota of existence. It was coming at us from all sides. And then the concealment returned. And when Mashiach will come, then we will revisit that vision in a much grander fashion, as we described many a class ago. So there's no comparison between the vitality. We don't recognize it as godly, but it's vitality nonetheless of doimim, the inanimate, and the vegetative, we can't compare that to the animating force or the amount of nefesh which is found in the animal world or in the realm of human existence. Even though all of them, all from the inanimate to the fish in the deep sea, to the redwood trees, to the smallest figments of vegetation like algae all the way until the largest animals or the smallest little ants or gnats and then people all of this is it's all the same light but use the word light with energy it's all the same energy it's all the same quantum physics if you will it's all within the same realm we're not talking about planet Earth only, the Moon and Mars and Saturn and Venus. It's all part of the same reality. We're all part of it. It's called the material world, the world of material reality. The stratosphere, material reality. And it's all Bebechinas Hester Ponim. In none of that can you actually see God. If you dig on the surface, the lunar surface, you will not find God any more than if you dig into the crust of Earth. And if humanity makes it to Mars and goes for a stroll, they will see amazing things. A different world, but it's the same thing. Mostly inanimate. Supposedly there's evidence of once there having been water. We don't even have the same range of inanimate material. 
as we have on planet Earth. But on that red planet, you're not going to find God any closer. It's all one big Hester Ponim. The entire reality, existence, in all of its enormous iterations, what they call the universe, and beyond, all of that is Hester Ponim. It's all the concealment of God. Star Trek doesn't take you closer to Gan Eden. It's malubish belavush echad. It's a one-size-fits-all garment. It may look different or feel different in outer space than it feels on Earth, near the equator, or at the poles, but the reality is, on some level, it's all the same. All the same because in none of it is the presence of the Creator discoverable, per se. You don't get to see godliness. It's kulon shaulavush noiga. It all wears the garment, the shell of light. Now the shell of light is because there are sparks of light contained in it. And if you utilize the peel appropriately, good things can be brought to life from it. If you work hard enough at the shell of the orange, you can turn it into candy. And you can actually make money off orange peels. But the orange peel serves to conceal the flesh of the orange. That's what orange peels do. And the world of Kalipa is the shell that conceals the truth about our world. So in the same way that you understand that all the entire reality, the range of reality, and there is such a range, we simplify it by saying, inanimate, vegetative, animal, and then human. It's this over, gross oversimplification. The range of each of those, the range of minerals, the range of vegetation, the range of animals, even the range of people. So the range is extraordinary, but it's all really one picture. It's called Eilam Hazeh Hagashmi, the material, literal world. And this literal world, godliness is all concealed. Hester Ponim. You may know there's a God, you may believe there's a God, you can't see him. People have often said to me, Rabbi, prove it to me. I can't prove anything to you. I can't show you God. And if I could, then this would not be of any great meaning. It would be instinctive for us to serve God. Our Avodah Hashem would have very little value. And guess what? When Mashiach does come in Yerzah Hashem very, very soon, all of the extraordinary possibilities to be attained through Avodah, through strenuous efforts expressing our dedication to God, will all fade away. And they will become yomim asherim behem chayfets, as the Rebbe Rashab famously explained, days in which there is no desire. We will yearn for these golos days, for this time in which so much could have been accomplished with relatively so little. And we're here right now. And we can do this. And right now we're studying Torah, we are. Baruch Hashem. So in the same way that you cannot compare the level of animation and we see animation although we don't see it as god we view animation or a soul as the animating force of god as if you will we see it as the symptoms of divinity it's the telltale markers it's god's fingerprints i'm told you can't see electricity 
But you know if the electricity is off, because if it's off, the lights aren't on, the climate control isn't working, and you and I would not be able to study Torah right now. We need the electricity. I know there's Wi-Fi now because you're listening and because I'm able to broadcast. I don't see Wi-Fi. I don't know what it looks like. In fact, it doesn't look. So what do we get to see? We have evidence that it exists. That's what we would call, if you will, circumstantial evidence. The fact that we are having this exchange is proof that Wi-Fi is working. The fact that the lights are on in this room and the fact that it's fairly comfortable to sit here, although it's quite cold outside, is evidence that there is electricity. Although we don't actually see the electricity. So we see evidence. We see the telltale signs of divinity when we see soul and we value and view life as being divine. And there, there's a difference between forms of life, from bacteria to algae, from, from trees to grass, from little critters to giant animals, from animals that contain tremendous wisdom to dodo birds. So the notion... So the notion then is that goof and nefesh, body and soul, are not really living in different realms. One is godly and one is not. They're all godly. The soul is godly, but then again, the physical world is also godly. Incidentally, to destroy the physical world for no purpose or reason is an act of rebellion against God because it's God's world. There has to be a good reason to cut trees down. Just cut trees down. The Rebbe Rashab once severely rebuked his only son, who later became the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, for tearing a, a leaf off for no reason. It's life. It's all life. So where's the difference, though? The difference is in the expression of life, of divine life. We know we can see an animating force under a microscope. But when we see vegetation, we can actually see it live. And you know, sometimes they take a film and they speed it up a thousand times, ten thousand times, and you can actually see a tree growing. You see the life. Although with our naked eye, we wouldn't be able to see it. But the technology cannot create something that you're not, that doesn't exist. It doesn't show you a rock growing. Because the tree really is growing. And if the camera will be placed on the tree or the grass, and then you will speed it up thousands of times, you will actually see it grow in what seems to be real time. And then, of course, there's animal life. Look into the eyes of an animal. And you can see an animal have pity, an animal have, have, have anxiety. Animals have joy and pleasure. You can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in their, in their throat. So there's no difference then between creation on one level, it's all divine. On the other level, there's a world of difference in the levels of animation or expressions of divinity. And the Alter Rebbe is going to tell us that the same thing is true about mitzvahs. On one hand, on one hand, the act of a mitzvah, forget mindfulness, forget intention, the act of a mitzvah is no less holy than the thought or intention of the mitzvah. Both are the will of God. But in which do you see the profundity of the mitzvah with greater intensity? In which do you see the mitzvah as a mechanism for closeness, for cleaving to Hashem? Certainly in the latter. 
And therefore, the Altar Rebbe says, as we described much, much earlier, when we look at a mitzvah, we're looking at something which is markedly different than the rest of creation because creation is punctuated by concealment. Why is the world concealed? Because God wants it to be concealed. Does God want the world to be in a state of chaos? Does God want evil? Does God want selfishness? Does God want violence? Chas v'shalom. Well, if God doesn't want it, why is it there? The answer is God allows it to be there. Why? Because God wants mitzvahs. And in order for there to be mitzvahs, there has to be the possibility of the opposite. So the opposite is what we call a means to an end, but it is not really what God wants. It's a concealment of God wants. It's a deviation of God wants in order for him to get what he wants. What does God want? If the world were to look as God wants it to be, what would it look like? It would be a world that functions in perfect, precise synchronicity with the will of Hashem. That's what it would be. Was there ever any corner of the world that functioned in precise, exact expression, perfect synchronicity with the will of God? The answer is yes. That's what the Beit HaMikdash was. The Beit HaMikdash was a place in which everything was done exactly according to the will of God, precisely the way Hashem wants it, in the speediest, swiftest, and most devoted way. Kahan Izrizmin, the Kohanim were people who, who pulsated with this notion of yearning and desire to do what Hashem wanted. And they were filled with alacrity and enthusiasm and zest and precise professionalism. And they got every single detail exactly as Hashem wanted. And the Beis HaMikdush is a place where mitzvahs were done from morning to night. Everything that happened in that building was exactly the way Hashem wanted it to be. So the presence of Hashem is there. Did we see the presence of Hashem? Not in the second Beis HaMikdash, unfortunately. But it still was a Beit HaMikdash, meaning it still functioned exactly as God wants it to be. So if the world could be picture perfect, what would it be? Balmy? Sunny? Rainy? Thunderstorms? Which is the picture perfect world? The answer is the weather is irrelevant. The picture perfect world is not pictures of beautiful scenery. The picture perfect world is a world in which everything... Everything is the way Hashem wants it to be. What does an iPhone look like when it's being utilized for the ultimate purpose that Hashem intended for it? We're both looking at it on different edges, different sides of it. That's why Hashem allowed an iPhone to be created. That's why Millions of people have made contributions over thousands of years to reach the point where this tiny little device that literally fits into my palm can now be placed in a small pedestal, a small little tripod, and we can use it to study Torah together, to unite from literally four corners of the world. It's an extraordinary thing. Had that happen? It happened because, because we chose to make it happen because we chose to utilize this precise mechanism as Hashem would want it to be. 
A pair of tefillin, that is Ratzon Hashem, especially when the pair of tefillin is on the body of a Jewish man over the age of Bar Bas Mitzvah. A piece of wax, a paraffin that's being kindled just before the right time on Friday night with a blessing recited over it, ushering in the Shabbat. That's exactly the way Hashem wants the world to look. And as we learned previously, no matter how devoted you and I will ever be, no matter how committed the greatest tzaddik will ever be, he or she will always be somewhat disconnected from the Ratzon Hashem because in order for the person to do a mitzvah, there has to be space, daylight between the person and God. If there's no daylight between the person performing the mitzvah and God, then there is nobody to perform a mitzvah. The necessity, that, 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 the absolute necessity of us being existing independently for a mitzvah to be performed cannot be overstated. That is the basic definition. There is a mitzvah, a mitzvah, a commander, and there is a recipient of the tzivui. We need to be apart, separate from God in order to receive the command. Otherwise, God's commanding himself. And there is no command. And there is no value of virtue in the mitzvah being performed because we have no desire one way or the other. So we need to have desire. We need to feel we are, and then we can choose if we will or won't do the mitzvah. So we can never be a picture-perfect expression of divinity. Because it's not only expression of divinity, there's always a little me too. But when a mitzvah is performed, objectively speaking, the, the physicality there is not an, an expression of Hester Panim. It's not an expression of concealment, but rather it becomes an expression of Gilui Ritzoinoi Yisbarach, an expression of the will of Hashem. Now, because this is the case, the question may well be asked, is there a difference between the physical act of the mitzvah and the mindful or intentful performance of the mitzvah? They're not the same. It's not the same to do, go through the motions of a mitzvah, is not the same as the feelings of the mind or heart that accompany the kavana. The avaviyida, the, the fervor, the mindfulness, the intention that accompany a mitzvah. They're not the same. Of course they're not the same. Just as we understand that there's a difference between the human life and between animal life, between vegetative and between the inanimate. In the same way the parallel is, there's a difference between the act of the mitzvah and between the intention of the mitzvah. The intention of the mitzvah takes the place of the soul. The act of the mitzvah takes the place of the body of the mitzvah. The act of verbalization called Maise Zutra, as we explained in great detail, the notion of articulating oneself when that's the mitzvah is also an act. Maybe that's like the vegetative reality. It's a little closer to us. It's less divorced from our inner essence. We speak. And when we do so, we express the core of our being, nafshi bedabri A person can express himself. He, he can pour forth his soul in speech. Whereas action, it's much more difficult to do that. Although if you talk to an artist who is able to paint from his soul, he would argue that he can also express his feelings. He can express his passion. He can express his ideas and his dreams and aspirations in canvas in paint on canvas or by sculpting with clay or stone. And the point, of course, 
The point, of course, is, my dear friend, that just as the body, the physical reality, the inanimate reality, is created by God, but we don't see an animated sense of divinity in it, even if we can't recognize that that animation is divinity, but there is an animation. And on the level of tzimtzum, on the level of God's light being concealed, albeit it takes another form, but it's still expression of godliness. So when we have a mitzvah being performed from one perspective, just like we see the world homogeneously, whether it's inanimate or vegetative, animal or human, it's all part of Elam Hazagashmi, it's all part of the physical material world, and none of it is more material or less material per se, none of it is more or less part of this reality in which we live, it's all part of our existence. So too, when it comes to a mitzvah, the mitzvah represents kedusha. The mitzvah represents holiness. It represents the will of God being actualized. There is no difference per se between the will of God being actualized in the act of the mitzvah or in the intention of the mitzvah. But on the other hand, although all of it is what we call holy or all of it is expressive, articulative of the will of God, there is a difference in energy. And this Tal Rebbe explains, this is exactly the same idea that we spoke about earlier. Here is the mirror image. Just as there is no difference, so too there is no difference between the inner will of God that it is believed, it's not God concealing himself. That's what God wants in this world. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. No concealment whatsoever. That which is expressed in the physical act of a mitzvah being done, that objectively speaking, the act, divorced from the person who's doing it, but the act of the mitzvah. Whether the mitzvah is something which requires verbalization, articulation, in the movement of lips, without any intention, that the words, the movement of lips, the articulated, spoken expression is just like the hands giving tzedakah, putting on tefillin, lighting Shabbat candles, or fixing mezuzahs. So all of this together is the same. Expressions of how the world is supposed to look by the will of God. But you cannot compare you cannot compare the intensity of, 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 of holiness that pulsates you cannot compare that to the intention because the mitzvah also has a body and a soul. So a mitzvah without kavana is like, it's like a body without a soul, meaning the inanimate reality is there and the inanimate reality doesn't have any, the tzimtzum does very little life filters through. So it's an expression of what God wants. However, when that mitzvah is performed intentfully, it's like having the added virtue of an overt expression of devotion to God rather than just an objective truth that this is an act of devotion to God. In the latter, it feels like an act of devotion. It actually feels like holiness, whatever that means. But we feel closeness to Hashem. Like the difference between the animation, divine animation in life compared to the mineral reality. In other words, with regard to the notion that a mitzvah is an expression of God's will, not concealed in any way, shape or form, not a means to an end, but the end in and of itself, 
There is no greater virtue or value in the intention of a mitzvah, even if it's spiritual, vis-a-vis the action or the words of the mitzvah. Both are equally the same. In both, there is no means, only end. No hest upon him, no concealment, only an expression of how God wants things to be. However, in this at the same time, the same way we cannot compare the way, the life, the divine throbbing, the resonating, the pulsating of life is found within the inanimate reality or the vegetative reality to how godliness pulsates, how life throbs and resonates within the animal world and even more so within the human world. Even though all of them are equally devoid of overt godliness per se, that means the throbbing of life, the resonating of life doesn't seem necessarily any more godly, although it really is. So too you cannot compare the hamshacha, the bringing forth, the actualization of what we call the infinite energy or light of God, which illuminates in a mitzvah, that is performed an act of a mitzvah or a mitzvah that is verbalized or articulated, you cannot compare that to the amount of energy that resonates and pulsates within the intention of a mitzvah. The mindfulness, the meditation, the thought, the consciousness that accompanies the mitzvah, which by the way, that's part of the mitzvah too. Hashem wants not only your hands and feet, He wants your heart and your mind. That's the meaning of Avedis Hashem. And just as we see this, in a very open way, the Alter Rebbe says, that what is the intention of a mitzvah? As long as there's a kavana. The Alter Rebbe is not talking about lofty, mystical, Kabbalistic formulas to ruminate and meditate upon, to contemplate some kind of deeper spiritual truth. That a person intends with the performance of this mitzvah. Four simple words. The intention that accompanies the mitzvah is, Four simple words. The intention is in order to cleave to Him. That's why I'm doing the mitzvah. The Bubi Yazidi find out that their grandchild likes this kind of treat and, or that kind of toy. And so they go to who knows what kind of length just to please the child. It's all they wanted to put a smile on the child's face. And the joy of the grandparents is indescribable. Only your grandparents understand what that means. Like a person who's in love and wants to please his lover, the object of his love, and this husband and wife that goes through all kinds of pains just to please the person they love. It's all they want to do. Like a child. They become teenagers very soon. But a child who loves his or her parents. And the little child just wants the parents to be happy. Mommy, are you happy? Tati, do you, you happy with what I do now? Yes. Ah, the child is so blessed. He's so happy. It's all he wants. What is a yid seeking a mitzvah? We do a mitzvah not to please other human beings. We do a mitzvah not even to find self-satisfaction. We do a mitzvah. This is the essential attention and the intention that must accompany every mitzvah. The intention is I want to be close to God. And God says that my relationship with Him has to be on His terms, not my terms. Otherwise, I'm having an imaginary relationship with an imaginary God. With my own idol that I created, the God of my image. The God who I projected my value system, my wants, my likes, my comforts and discomforts onto a great big screen and then I bowed to it and said I'm going to pay homage to it. But that's not a relationship with God. 
the great creator which we cannot fathom, the infinite creator, that we can have a relationship. That's why Hashem gave us mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are a mechanism through which God allowed us to have a relationship with Him. And every single time a yid does a mitzvah, whatever it is that he or she is doing, whether it's eating matzah, lighting a Shabbat candle, or fixing a mezuzah, putting on a pair of tefillin, putting a coin in a pushka or in the hand of a needy person, making a bracha and eating food that is halachically kosher, a couple that comes together in love and intimacy with with the observance of the laws the way this is supposed to be governed the way that the Almighty God wants it to be. To take your home and to fill it with holiness by ensuring that there's holy books in the home, that there's Torah books in the home. Just that simple act of doing these things is being performed because our Yid wants to be close to Hashem. That's an intention. There's the action. The action is the body, is the expression. But what are you looking for? I'm looking. So intrinsically, the action and that intention are not more godly. But where do you feel connected? Where do you feel a more intense relationship with God? In the act or in the knowledge and intention that by doing this, I am fulfilling Ratzon Hashem. You don't have to answer that question. It's obvious. It's obvious. In other words, we don't need to have lofty mystical meditations in order to feel close to God. We just have to be aware that I'm doing this to please, to please God, to have a relationship with God. And I want to feel close to God. And when I'm doing it intentfully, I'm actually feeling that way. And I'm doing it mindlessly. I feel nothing. I was coerced. I was pressured. I did it out of rote or habit. I didn't feel close to God. It was no intention. So how does one have this ladovka al kiyom by fulfilling the will of Hashem? Shahu echad. Ah, here the Alter Rebbe opens up a whole new world which we could talk about for hours. We don't have hours, unfortunately. Binikuda in a small point. The point, my dear friends, we are going to make now is that when we have a rotzin, when we have a desire for something, it's a desire for something that is outside of us. In fact, the word rotzin, as it says in Hasidus, can be scrambled to spell the word tsinur. Tsinur could mean a pipeline or a cable or an energy field. It's the way we connect to something else. It could be a Wi-Fi expression. I want this or I want that. And then when you get this and that, what's going to happen? Then I'm going to be happy. And when I'll be happy, what will I have? Then I will be in a state of bliss. Then I will have tainuk. So I want these things. I became aware of these things, and that's why I want these things. For us, our rutzen is outside of us. When I fulfill your will, or when you fulfill my will, you're not connecting to my essence. You're connecting to my essence as it's expressed in a will, a desire for something, which is still not me. But with God... All of that is moot, but there is nothing outside of God. And as the Alter Rebbe explains in Shaykh Vemuna, based on Maimonidean terminology, it is impossible for us to fathom not only God's corporeality, which can't be, even the notion of wisdom or of feelings don't make sense for God. Feelings are engendered. I respond to something. How do you feel about this? I used to feel this way, now I feel that way. With God, there can't be anything like that. 
Because there is no past, present, and future. And if there is no past, present, and future, there can be no intelligence as we understand it because all of intelligence is couched within the frame of, I, I, I didn't know that. I, I'm, I can learn new things. Ah, now I'm aware. In Hebrew, the knowledge, the potential knower, and the known. And the same is true with feelings. And of course, the same is true with the Ratzin. With will. But we, we can have a desire for something. We can lose a desire for something. But Hashem's mitzvahs are His Ratzin. And Hashem Uritzayne Echad. God and His desires are one. And we don't really know what that means because we don't know what God's desire means just as we don't know what God's intelligence or God's feelings mean. Because we only know about them in the frame of our existence, which is within the vicissitude of time, under the sway of experiential reality, which necessitates a time before, a dynamic experience, and then it's post-mortem. For divine, for God, none of this is applicable. It's all moot. But what that means is that when you do a mitzvah, it is actually connecting with the essence of the Rabbeinu Shalom. And the same is true when a person davens with a kavana, as the Rebbe is mechadash, the Rebbe has this amazing sicha and chilek of Beis Nalukot the Rebbe says that you should know that when it comes to a mitzvah according to the mitzvah of davening according to the Rambam, that the notion of mischanen umispalel, the notion of connecting to God emotionally, of pleading with God, of, 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 of trying, reaching out to God, that's actually part of the chefts of davening, the Rebbe says. That's part of the davening itself. So a person might think, maybe that's the body of the davening. The Rebbe says, no, no, no. That spiritual part of the act of tefillah is also within the realm of kavana. And so just in intentions can we find that intensity. And that brings us back to where we started. Who needs intentions? Who needs intentions if the most important thing is the action carried out? And the answer is, from the perspective of the will of Hashem, you're right. The action is the will of Hashem in the same way the intentions are. It's not any loftier, any holier, any purer. However, from the level of intensity, from the level of experience, from the level of us getting to feel close to Hashem, intentions are vastly, vastly greater and more profound, vastly more meaningful. And so, in conclusion, some things are just in intentions. Only in intention is it possible for me not only to fulfill, technically speaking, the will of the Creator, but for me to fulfill the will of crea the Creator in a way that feels, that I feel a closeness to Hashem. That there is a, if you will, expression of divinity and of spiritual closeness within the frame of that mitzvah performance itself. And so intentions are indeed like the neshama, like the soul, like the life of the mitzvah when it's metaphorized as but the body that's able to contain the profundity, intensity, power, and beauty of those thoughts, of those meditations, and of those feelings. And so my friend, in closing, intentions are very important. Intentions are very powerful. And when we perform a mitzvah, intentfully, mindfully, 
we are able to experience a closeness to Hashem that is simply unparalleled. And all of this, the act of the mitzvah, especially its intention, brings us closer to the time in which we will all experience the profoundest sense of oneness, the greatest sense of closeness and cleaving to our Kodesh Baruch Hu, to our Creator, with the coming of Mashiach, the Mheira will be Amenu Amen speedily and in our days. Thanks for joining today.